EMRC, EMRC, this is County Medic 12 requesting a consult with the University of Maryland. Okay, County 12, switch to Med 4, Med 4. Copy, switching to Med 4. Hey everyone, this is James from the Med4 Podcast, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast journal club. To get us started off right, I'm here with Dr. Galvano. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Doc. Glad to be here. Now to get us started, what article did you pick for us for our first review? Well, one of the articles that's been talked about a lot recently is the one that just came out in JAMA by the group from France. And this is the paper that looked at rocaronium versus succinylcholine for endotracheal intubation success rate out of hospital, rapid sequence intubation. So this is nice. This is an out-of-hospital study. So this this is going to be nice. This is an out-of-the-hospital study. I think there's a couple caveats for those that pra- of us that practice in the U.S. that are a little bit different. But, uh, you know, first and foremost, whenever you look at a paper, it's really easy to, quote-unquote, rip the paper apart. I, I, I don't want to do that too much with this podcast. I really want to commend these authors for doing a phenomenal really pre-hospital study we don't have enough pre-hospital high quality literature like this this is a, one of the few randomized controlled pre-hospital studies we've got so great way to start off the year um, you know I think there's always things we can pick at with these papers and considerations but at least it gets us thinking and that's the whole goal of our podcast today yeah so absolutely um, so to start off let me describe the study and we're going to give links in the show notes to all this. Uh, we'll give PubMed links. I would we'd recommend contacting your medical directors if they they'll have access to get these papers for you. We unfortunately can't give the papers. I don't think legally online, but um, but you'll be able to get access to it via different methods. We'll we'll give some links for that. But this paper was published in JAMA 2019, just this past month. This was a study done in France. This was a study done by an EMS system. That's a two-tiered system in France. The first level is comprised of basic life support, very similar to what we have in the U.S., but the second level has physician-staffed ambulances. And these physician-staffed ambulances specialize in either emergency medicine, 90% of the uh, physicians are EM EM physicians, or anesthesiology in 10%, someone like me. Um, Although I'm just a frustrated, really a frustrated (laughs) uh, EMS doc, as as most of you know by now. But boarded in it. Nevertheless, uh, this study, um, they took and randomized patients to two different arms, either succinylcholine or rocaronium. They had two different hypnotics that they used, sedatives, atomidate, or ketamine, used at a dose of 0.3 mg per kg or ketamine 2 mg per kg. Um, what else can we say? I mean, I think, honestly, we can get into the details of how this study was designed, but the advantage of a randomized controlled trial is is that you balance the groups out. That's the idea, is you have an automatic balancing that occurs by randomizing patients to specific intervention. And so it's kind of the concept of all things being equal and all things should be equal, because if you randomly allocate a treatment to either study arm, then hopefully everything gets balanced out and you don't have any what we call residual biases or confounders or things that can cause inaccurate results. So that's, that's a strength of this study, is that they really tried hard to randomize patients uh, to these interventions and really try to isolate the, the, the question of whether sucks is as good or worse than rock. I think the problem with this study is 
the actual design and this very confusing term, and we will have links to some other papers you can read about these types of trial designs, and that's the term non-inferiority. Non-inferiority is, think about a football field. Think about uh, the wide receiver getting into the end zone. And you know those, those, clo those close calls where the feet are or are not in the end zone. They don't call the touchdown because they didn't touch down in the end zone. Think of a non-inferiority trial as having a little bit of a bigger end zone, perhaps. The end zone, field to field, end to end, is the confidence interval. And with a non-inferiority trial, what we do is we lengthen one end of the end zone to provide a margin. Now that margin can be 10 yards, 20 yards. So in other words, would we count a touchdown if that the, the receiver lands in that area? So that's, that's a very simplistic way of describing it, but it's critically important in reading this trial because yes, it is a randomized controlled trial, but the problem is they really were trying to look at, and it's very confusing when you read this, when you read non-inferiority, failed to prove non-inferiority, we have all these double, triple negatives. And honestly, what they were trying to do in this study was see, is succinylcholine the same as rock? Are they basically the same is really what we're looking at here. And there's this term non-inferior non -inferior that's thrown in there. That's just the technical term we use from statistics. Now, when you say yeah. they're the same, do you mean in action or in intubation success? Ah, perfect. So you're great segue. So that's really the, the big, the other question with this paper and, and kind of a problem, I think, honestly. What was the outcome they were looking at? That's what you're, you're yeah, asking. Yeah, what was the outcome? So they were looking, their outcome, primary outcome was first passed oral tracheal intubation success rate. I think a lot of us who do airway management would argue that's uh, a little bit of a, an iffy outcome. I'm more concerned, I think we're more concerned, and I know in our jurisdiction here in the state of Maryland and Anne Arundel County, we really talk about airway management, right, Jimmy? Right, yeah. I mean, we're, we just want to make sure we're, pre we're preventing hypoxia, preventing hypotension, all the stuff in Dan Spate's recent work. That's what we're looking to do. And... The first attempt, yes, it's great. It's definitely something that's reported in the literature, but is that really the best outcome? Not sure. That's what they used for this study. They, they judged the equivalence of sucks and rock based on that outcome, first pass success rate. And the problem also with that is that the first pass success rate in this paper, I would argue, is not as great as it's been reported in other jurisdictions throughout the world. So if you look at the folks in South Africa, it's a small study, 48 patients in 20, 2018, Stassen's group looked at this. They had, um, you know, 79% first pass success rate. If you look at the Australians, they have very high rates. One of their studies, close to 800 patients from DiLorenzo had an 89% plus first pass success rate. Other Folks such as our Pittsburgh colleagues have over an 80% reported success rate, 2016, with uh, Dr. Guyot and his crew in Pittsburgh. Um, also in the Netherlands, higher rates reported. So the point there is, if you're going to use that as your endpoint, and then it winds up being a little bit lower than what you would see elsewhere in the world, that could be a problem. And their first pass success rate in this study was not outstanding. Now, I would, I would counter-argue that the first pass success rate, they had a very high rate of securing the airways in the study, which is really what, we're, what we care about, is what, what did they get to? Is their end goal to get an airway and, and 
achieve airway management. And they did show that in the study uh, very well. So that was good. But I think the point there is you now have an endpoint which is questionable. And I would argue that first pass success rate may not be the best um, best out outcome. Other outcomes. So what other outcomes would we use? Okay, how about dose of hypoxia? How about dose of hypotension? Those might be other outcomes that could have been um, interesting to look at as primary outcomes. The problem with those outcomes are they can be actually pretty rare. And so the power for this study would have had to be a lot bigger. So already we're nerding out a little bit on this. <laughs> so I'm going to stop here and tell you that if you don't want to hear any more about non-inferiority studies, fast forward this podcast by about three minutes. But I do want to make a couple points about that because I do think it's, it's really vital. So going back to the football field, think of that as end-to-end confidence interval. A confidence interval is where the truth is, the real truth statistically is. So we, we talk about 95% confidence intervals. That means 95% of the values between the lower limit and the upper limit of that confidence interval, the bookends, the end zones, is the truth. When you do a non-inferiority trial, you have what's called a margin. And that's what I was referring to earlier, is that's the extension of one of the end zones making the end zone a little bit bigger so that when your receiver touches down, if they're on what would be the normal end line zone, line, marker, what have you, now you have a margin of a little bit more. And you can then overlay two different interventions on top of each other, and you have a margin that basically tells you um, if one intervention is not all that much worse than the other one. This is a statistical way to determine if two different treatments are just about the same or non-inferior, okay? I think the way that I would word this study is what they're really trying to do in this study is, uh, you know, the, to decode what is meant by non-inferiority, is rock equal to succinylcholine or is it not equal to succinylcholine in terms of whatever outcome we're looking at? In this case, we talked about the outcome of interest being first pass success rate. All fairness to these authors, they did look at a bunch of different secondary outcomes, okay? So that's a really good strength of this study. They looked at difficulty of intubation. They, they used several validated techniques for difficulty or intubating conditions, such as the Copenhagen scale. So there's a lot of strengths here with this in terms of the secondary outcomes. And perhaps you might argue that that's where some of the meat of this paper really is. Because I'm not sure when we look at this overall, their conclusion is they could not, decoding this, decoding this entire study, jumping right to the final conclusion, first pass success rate, rock was not equal to, they could not disprove that rock was equal to succinylcholine. It was, in other words, not equal to succinylcholine according to these, um, according to these uh, results. So you could say it's worse than succinylcholine in terms of achieving that first past success rate. I'm simplifying things a great deal here, and I, we will give you in the show notes some more data about non-inferiority trials. So let me stop there in terms of the nerdiness. We can keep going if you want and keep going, but <laughs> I, I'd like to get back just to the meat and potatoes of the study, talk about a couple of other aspects that I think are important, especially when you try to generalize this to your practice. And keep in mind, we're very U.S.-centric here, but we do keep a world view. Uh, but we are very U.S. centric in our own jurisdiction because that's where we practice, Jimmy and I. Um, so, 
going back to the study, when you do a randomized controlled trial, you want to make sure that you have indeed achieved that goal of having balance between your two study groups. That's the whole advantage of an RCT. That's why it's considered a gold standard. But with that comes a price. The price is generalizability to other patient populations. And if you look at table one, most of these patients in this trial were medical patients. They were not trauma patients. Less than 10% of these patients were trauma patients. Where we work, and where I work here at the R. Adams College Shock Trauma Center, you know, regardless of um, the reason for intubation, almost all of our intubations have some degree of uh, related to trauma, um, clearly, and in the field, that is probably, would you agree with me, Jimmy? Is that more our, 80, 90% of okay. our RSIs in our jurisdiction are trauma patients. For trauma patients. Mm -hmm. So in this study, over 50%, close to 50% in both groups, uh, 49 in the succinylcholine group, coma due, due to uh, neurological diseases, coma due to poisoning. So they had a large group of intoxications, and they had less than 10% trauma patients. And also, their patients that were in shock, and they didn't describe the different types of shock, but they just listed shock, was less than 2%. So that's important because mm -hmm. this is really a medical trial. This is not really a trauma trial of trauma intubation in patients with TBI, things that we, we will and, and have talked about in this podcast. So that's important. I think it's also important to acknowledge this is a physician-based study. You know, this was not para these were not paramedics. These were these were EM physicians and over 90%, 10% anesthesiologists that were actually intubating. And so that's important to know. I think that um, there's a couple other small details here that reading closely that are just interesting and I don't know if they really affect the results. They may, but it does it does represent a departure from some of the practices we have. So they didn't use stylets in their ET tubes. And I understand some jurisdictions teach this, some don't. I will tell you at shock trauma and also... Yeah, in our jurisdiction, yeah. We, we advocate for a device inside the tube. And certainly I know our colleagues in London, very high-performing organization, London HEMS, um, they do not teach a no-stylet approach. There, there I am with a double negative. See how you get into this trap <laughs> of double negatives? It's so confusing. So I try to stomp that out of our practice. So using a stylet is, in many places, a standard. They did not use stylets as they described. Um, I don't know if that has a whole lot of relevance. It's just an interesting point. Um, I definitely will tell you that when we teach airway management at shock trauma, that's mandatory. We don't we don't go without a stylet in and our if, approach. And if you look at other literature, it also shows a 90% increase first-time success just by using a bougie in there your you practice. Go. So yeah. a bougie, a rigid stylet, yeah. or a stylet will assist or help with first-time success. There you go. The other thing that they did was uh, they did not use video laryngoscopy. Now we can get a whole into a whole other podcast. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. we will at some point. Uh, you know, you could argue there. I think the best literature shows that for low volume intubators, that video laryngoscopy has a little bit of a higher success rate. But I, I would argue that if you're good with direct laryngoscopy, probably not a big deal. So I don't know if that's a big deal, but it's just something worth mentioning because again, I can tell you that in many of our other populations, also in the military where I work. A lot of the things we teach there are to go right to a video laryngoscope if it's available. Uh, and our GO team, for instance, here at Shock Trauma, when we do have our field deployment of an advanced resuscitation team, physician and CRNA, we go right to video laryngoscopy. That's our primary technique of choice. So just, just putting that out there, um, I think that um, I think we get into the 
when we get into this, you know, really what they show is there's a figure here, which I would encourage you to kind of think of as an end zone. It's that's probably an oversimplification, but it shows the confidence intervals. Non-inferiority trials are all about the confidence intervals. They're all about the overlap of the truth. So when you think confidence interval, it's the truth. The truth is somewhere between our lower and upper limits that have been calculated statistically. And there's ways we can do that, which if you ever meet me, I'll be happy to go into and nerd out on you if you want had to. I had to learn how to do that by hand at one point. Uh, no longer. But the point is it's all about the confidence intervals. And in their their main um, results section, they do a very, have a very nice figure where they show this. And... Um, They sh you'll see that the, the, the two drugs, the dots uh, of the effect estimate, basically overlap exactly. So there's there's no, the one drug doesn't beat out the other, to put it simply. It just didn't wasn't shown in this, in terms of first pass success rate. However, however, if you look at the complication rates, there were more complications in patients who had succinylcholine, and some of these differences were statistically significant. More patients who got sucks had arrhythmias, for example, 4.2% versus 2%. More patients who got sucks had hypotension, 10 versus 6%. Um, there's also, in general, more complications with the succinylcholine group. These were secondary endpoints. They weren't the main, the main endpoints that the study was designed around, but they're additional observations that the authors made. Now, I know uh, for me, being a pre-hospital condition, those are the ones that are striking to me. That's what I like. The secondary, the those are what I like. The Is it the potassium? Is it the preload? What was the ventilations? Are we reducing preload? That Those are things that interest me the most. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, here's the thing that's great about this trial, and I, I, I really do want to give the authors a, a lot of credit because they addressed a very clinically relevant problem there's many, Jimmy, you can speak up, speak to this as, as someone who teaches this all the time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and not, not only that, but you're also on the end of the cost. And without, it depends on where you get your drugs, but clearly sucks in most jurisdictions is way cheaper than rock. Yeah. And, you know, so we get into the cost. When uh, we get into duration, one of the things that mm -hmm. I, I'm concerned about being a pre-hospital condition is we start getting into what medication is better than the other. I'm not worried about the first-time pass success because I'm going to educate our providers on airway management, and that's where I really believe those techniques are going to lead to the first-time pass success. When it comes to the two medications, what I'm looking at as a pre-hospital clinician is the potassium release, the bradycardia, the drop in blood pressure, where the rock's not going to have that. Mm -hmm. However, I'm going to get a longer duration with rock. That concerns me. Because if I run into a problem during the intubation attempt, I'm with sucks, it's going to wear off in about five minutes. With yep. rock, I'm looking at 45 minutes to an hour, and that's kind of concerning to me. If I can't get that airway, mm -hmm. what am I going to do? Now, there is a reversal that goes along yep. with that, but that reversal is very expensive it as is. well. Yep, that's true. Yeah, and it's the reversal to get to a full reversal dose of Sugamidex. You've got to draw out several vials. Um, you know, at least the ear shock trauma, the way we supply it, we have to draw that up. It doesn't just happen in two seconds. Even if someone's designated to do that in an, in an area where you're trying to reverse them, you're talking about a time commitment. And logistically, it's just difficult to get that reversal 
on board rapidly. It does work great. Sagamidex works phenomenally to reverse Rockeronium. I'll give you an example of literally just a few nights ago when I was on call, we had a neurologic patient who came in who, uh, you know, didn't have a great GCS but also had some residual sedatives, got an RSI in the field, and was given Rockeronium. And actually, we repeated the rock when they got here. And the question there is, you know, had we used sucks or had, the, had they used sucks in the pre-hospital environment, would we have had a better, because the neurosurgeon came down and said, I need to get a neuro exam. So there we were stuck with trying to get, there's no contraindication to succinylcholine. It was just a provider preference. But it gets into that, if you need a neuro exam, I, th I think what I'm trying to say is there's a role for succinylcholine still. And we use it at shock trauma quite liberally still. Quite frankly, there's very few contraindications that, you know, unless we have a medical patient who we have no idea what their potassium is, or, you know, maybe a, a kid, we don't have a lot of kids here at shock trauma, but in the field in Anne Arundel, yeah. we might consider, you know, alternatives. But for the most part, succinylcholine is, I'm not a sucks hater, bottom line. So that's why I like this study, because it does address a, a question that we have about, well, if for the folks that really like rockeronium, is that really a better drug? This study, at least in terms of first-pass success rate, couldn't demonstrate that. They could not demonstrate that rock was better than sucks for first-pass success. Um, but, you know, there were some complications with succinylcholine that are worth mentioning. They talk about that. They talk about that in the, uh, in the results. And, and, you know, some of the things there that they bring up are, you know, so and even though this was a randomized controlled trial, when they gave sucks, patients got more opioids and midazolam in the sucks group. So did that lead to more hypotension? Did that lead to mm -hmm. some of the side effects? Not sure. About, I believe it's 87% of the patients in both groups got Atomidate. That's important to note because not every jurisdiction uses Atomidate. Um, it is very prevalent in worldwide, but some folks are going to other induction agents. Um, you know, ketamine was not used. It was not used in the majority of patients in the study. A lot of other populations were, were going to ketamine first. So would that have made a difference? Not sure. They didn't talk about whether the patient was inclined or, re or positioned on the stretcher. They said that whether they were on a stretcher or, or laying in basically a, a street. So they made some attempt to address that, but it's still a limitation of getting back to what you were saying, Jimmy. How were these patients prepared? No stylet. They did some things a little bit differently than maybe some of us would do. Did they make did that make a difference? I, I don't know. I would say that this was a very experienced group that was intubating, and I would give them the credit of that. But those are questions that go back to the first pass success rate, which was lower than reported in a lot of other studies. And I think to end it, if you look at large data in other populations, such as the emergency department, there's also a Cochrane review. The paper I'm referring to, uh, which looked at the near the National Emergency Airway Registry back in uh, 2018, this is Michael April in the near investigators, they found, first of all, this is in an ED, not pre-hospital, but a very large patient population, well over 3,000 patients, not randomized, but they looked at sucks, they looked at rock, and they could not find a difference, st no statistically significant difference in, in their first pass success rate with that. Um, and overall success rate was very high in this study. They had, by the way, over an 87% first pass success rate and over a 99% overall success rate in both groups, rock versus sucks. So do we look at that? Do we look at the randomized control trial? What do we, where do we end with this? I think that, um, I don't think we have a clear answer. I don't think you can make an argument either way that rock is completely um, 
inferior to succinylcholine based on the study we're talking about today. And I think when you look at other larger populations, indeed, the two drugs are pretty much equal. I think it comes down to your clinical situation, picking the right drug for the right indication. If you need a quick neuro exam, sucks may be a good choice. If you are looking at a rare situation, I would argue, in emergency medicine and what I do in critical care and trauma, regard, you're not going to wake these patients up. Your, your, your commitment to their airway is a commitment to their airway. But the fact that sucks does wear off if you get into a challenging situation is something to think about. Um, rocaronium does provide a very reliable paralysis for at least 45 minutes in the majority of patients as a non-depolarizing uh, agent. So it, it really depends on your clinical situation. If you've got a patient who you really need to keep down, keep their work of breathing low, and they're purely a neurologic patient that you don't want to move and have spikes in ICP, maybe ROC's a good choice. Succinylcholine for the patient that you want to get them breathing back and, and try to preserve some of that, which we'll talk about, I hope, yeah. in a subsequent podcast, you know, that spontaneous ventilation. So it really comes down to that. Um, I don't think this paper by any means is conclusive, and nor does it put the moratorium on ROC as a pre-hospital med, um, but I think it's a it's an intriguing paper that brings up a lot of questions and considerations for our practice. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think it was a wonderful paper to start with, a wonderful paper to review. Uh, I kind of felt there was going to be no difference between the two. You know, to me, first pass success is really wrapped around your airway management skills, your airway management training, using that that plan, the plan A, B, C, D, working through it systematically. So I'm not surprised that there was no difference between the two. Um, I'd like personally to see more studies reference the two with hemodynamics or things like that. Um, you talked in here about Atomidate versus Ketamine. I'd love to know how these medications interact with Ketamine versus Atomidate. Um, I, like we've talked many times before in my, our jurisdiction, our go-to right now really is Ketamine, and we've had a lot of success with Ketamine. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, I, and I, I think the other thing it comes back to is, you know, the overall success rate. How do you define success? I think that's the core of a lot of this. You know, first pass success rate, like we talked about. Yeah, how about airway managed? Yeah. yeah how about whether you. it's BLS airways, a supraglottic airway, it's airway managed. Yeah. So I think that's the key point. And I think in all of anything we talk about in airway management, that's the key point. The drugs, yeah, you got to know how to use them for sure. But there's so many other factors that go into this that uh, to isolate the effect of one paralytic agent over another is really, really challenging. They tried to use this confusing term of a non-inferiority trial to tease that out. They were not able to. Um, but it doesn't come as a surprise to us given yeah. the factors we just talked about. Yeah. All right, Doc. I think that is right around our 30-minute window. Is there anything else you want to add to this? No, just uh, we'll, we'll we'll give links to the PubMed links to, so that everybody can access that, and you know, or or contact us personally if you really want to get at some of these papers and want to get get copies of them. We'll, we'll help you do that legally. Yeah, absolutely. And like Dr. Gavana said, we cannot legally put that on the internet, but feel free to reach out to your individual medical directors who should have access or or will have an ability to get access to that for you guys. And that being said, I think that was a fantastic start to our journal club. So thanks for listening.